Hello, thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. I'm here with you, Dr. Greer. How are you? I'm awesome, Joe. How are you? I'm happy. That's Susanna Greer. She's a scientific program director here. You're an immunologist, is that right? Card carrying, Joe. So this one was kind of up your alley. We spoke with Dr. Suzanne Warner. Uh, She's an MD. She's at City of Hope out in Los Angeles. So why did you want to talk with her? You're right, Joe. This was my jam. Anytime you want to sit down and talk about the immune system, I'm in. So Suzanne's work is so interesting because her work is around oncolytic viruses. I guess the dumb version for me of an oncolytic virus is a virus that you want to enable to both target and kill a tumor. So I learned a lot from her about how we do that, why we do that, um, some of the controversies around that, but the, the, I guess the big takeaway is that we should do that. So viruses are really good at enhancing our immune responses in general, and turn out they are outstanding at enhancing the immune response to cancer. So Suzanne is gonna share that in part A, and then in part B, a, just a really interesting deep dive into her research and to the relationship that patients have with surgeons and how we can improve those relationships and some of the challenges that patients are going to face. So I think you're going to love hearing from her and um, you're going to want to hear more. She was a delight. Excellent. Thanks so much, Susanna. Let's get into it. All right. Good afternoon, Suzanne. I'm so glad to have you join me today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. All right. So one area I'm particularly excited to talk to you about today, where you are really pushing the envelope, is around oncolytic viruses. But we can't just jump into that. So let's help folks understand. So what is an oncolytic virus? Yes. So oncolytic viruses, so oncocancer, lytic, killing or destroying uh, is where that word comes from. And um, they are naturally occurring or engineered viruses that are designed to target and replicate in cancer cells. And they typically leave normal cells unharmed. All sorts of different viruses can do this, from the virus that brings us the common cold um, to some of the more prominent viruses in clinical development right now, which includes vaccinia virus, which we work on, and that that was the same family of viruses that brought us the smallpox vaccine, and of course, smallpox itself, um, as well as measles and herpes and polio virus and many more. And there are quite a few um, promising agents working their way to standard clinical use. Um, But that's oncolytic viruses in a very short nutshell. Okay. So you said that oncolytic viruses have, I guess, two jobs, basically. They have to find, so they have to target, and then they have to get rid of or kill cancer cells. So how do they do that? How does that, those two processes happen? Yeah, so this is a great, this is a really great line of inquiry, actually, and it's one that the field is still kind of coming to understand, and actually, it's not just two jobs. We used to think that it was just kind of hand-to-hand combat, virus-to-cancer cell, um, you know, dog-eat-dog type of situation, and now we know that in addition to that, it's actually, um, so direct tumor cell entry and lysis, so there is still that hand-to-hand combat that does go on, and that is happens via, uh, by a variety of mechanisms. So a virus will come and sort of introduce itself to a cancer cell, and depending on how that interaction goes, either the cancer cell will then let the virus in, um, or the virus will enter by force. 
And then once it's in, it sort of uses the cancer cell machinery. Some viruses need to go all the way into the nucleus of the cell, which is sort of like the inner sanctum, if you think about um, a building. And once they make it there, they then can, can basically reprogram the cell to become a virus factory. Um, basically, it's the equivalent of somebody walking into a factory and saying, you don't make toys anymore, now you're going to make guns. So that's how that part happens. But there's this, this second two lines of, of effect that we are now growing to understand as a community of oncolytic virologists, which is that you can actually affect the factory next door. Um, there's, there's a bystander effect of the cells next to the cells that are infected with virus. And what happens is once the cells are infected with virus, they start sending messages to the cells around them um, that they are sick. And that can actually inflame the environment around a cell, which in turn activates the body's own immune system. And what we're now understanding is that that body's immune system against the virus can actually then be turned into an immune response against the tumor. So there's actually three ways to, start, to bring it all back around that viruses can destroy tumor. The first is that walking in and turning the tumor into a virus factory, the tumor cell into a virus factory. The second mm -hmm. is um, by essentially reprogramming the, the neighborhood that the tumor cell is in to stop hiding it from the immune system. And the final part is to essentially reprogram the immune system so that from then on, any cancer cell that at least that looked at all like the one that the virus infected um, can then be destroyed before it has time to grow. All right. That is all oh, fascinating. We could have a podcast on any one of those mechanisms. And we could also probably have a podcast on why you're so into combat analogies, but... <laughs> It might have something to do with my Texas upbringing. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. So I do want to, we're going to loop back to the immune system because I, I really want to dive down into understanding why we care about any of that, like why that matters that the immune system needs to be on alert and looking for things that look like cancer cells. But I think you said a couple of things that if I were just listening to this and didn't know anything about viruses, except that I had had the flu and that was terrible, um, <laughs> I, I would have some questions. So let's- sure. Let's loop back. Let's understand first that, that you've shared with us that the oncolytic virus has a goal, and that is to help eliminate the cancer. And it accomplishes that goal in what sounds like a myriad of different ways, some of them through the actions of the virus itself, and some of them by changing the body's reaction to the tumor or the immune response to the tumor. So all of those things are really important and different. So if you want to take something and design it, either start with your, you're just mixing things up in the lab and you're going to, you're going to generate a virus um, or you're going to engineer a virus to be oncolytic that maybe started, like you said, vaccinia or something like the flu. What, how do you do that? And do you have a 30 second version of how do we make an oncolytic virus? <laughs> Yeah, this is this is a great question, and it's one that that obviously many people are asking all over the world. Um, so viruses are naturally tumor tropic, meaning they go and replicate preferentially in tumor cells, and and because that is because the same machinery that makes a cancer cell immortal actually 
helps the virus replicate. The virus wants a cell that's going to stay alive longer than a normal cell because it gets to use that machinery longer. So when we're looking at viruses to make, the first thing to do is actually capitalize on the evolution of viruses that's been taking place for millions of years long before humans, right? And so um, that's one thing is actually picking the right virus. Mm -hmm. And once you have the backbone that, that you want to go with, um, the next case is then looking at what exactly you're trying to get out of the virus. Many of us want a more rapidly replicating virus, meaning one that can, can have a quick life cycle from, from, from the time it's one viral particle till the time it's many viral particles is a short period of time. And so that's the second piece is you want something that's, that's potent and, and rapid. And, and can I ask you a question real quick? Yep. So the mm -hmm. reason you would want lots of them would be in this case, you're not making lots of viral molecules that can go and infect other cells in the case when mm -hmm. we think about something like vaccinia or influenza. But in this case, you're wanting to make other viral molecules that can go target other cancer cells because we're not just dealing with one cancer cell. We're dealing with lots and lots of them. Is that why you're interested in making lots of viral yes. molecules? Absolutely. And and there is a little, I should know, I'd be remiss in not noting, I know you wanted a 30-second answer and I'm sorry, but, um, that, that there is some controversy right now in the field of virology that there has been some really interesting data, um, most specifically um, out of our colleagues in New York in Memorial Sloan Kettering who looked at their virus actually seemed to generate a better immune response when it didn't replicate as efficiently. So there is still some some debate as to whether we need to replicate as quickly as possible and destroy or whether it's enough to just make the immune system angry. So that is still an ongoing debate and I, I think that answer is going to take us many years to establish but I do think it's going to vary based on tumor, individual tumor of an individual person, not just tumor type, sure. and also um, and also virus and, and how it's engineered. But from our standpoint in our lab, what we've recognized is that, you know, most of the viruses that are safe to deliver to humans have been seen by humans before, and therefore there is some semblance of, of kind of recognition by the immune system that, hey, I'm going to get this virus out of the body. So we really do have a limited amount of time from injection to clearance by the immune system. And, and that amount of time, we need to basically generate as an aggressive a response as possible um, is, is kind of one of the theories. And during that time, you want your virus replicating as much as possible, yes, so that it can affect, infect as many cancer cells as possible, but also so that we can get as robust an antiviral response as possible. Um, and so the, the ultimate goal is that what we our ideal viruses are, potent, in our opinion, are potent, quickly dividing, and then what we call immunogenic. And that means that the type of tumor cell destruction that they cause makes a splash, essentially, and gets the attention of the immune system so that it can mount an antiviral response, which, which then is also an, a robust anti-tumor response if enough of those tumor cells have been destroyed and sort of revealed themselves to the immune system. Interesting. Okay. So let's dive down into that a little more. We We've heard a lot on the podcast about immunotherapies and why they work and why they sometimes don't work. But I think maybe let's start off with why we even care. So you're on the side of generating oncolytic viruses that will target cancer cells and will also increase an immune response to a cancer cell. So why do you even need that? Why? 
why doesn't the immune system just respond on its own to cancer? So why do we, yeah. why do we need to have this? The, why do you need to catch the attention of the immune system? Yeah, this is a really great question. So just like viruses have been working for millions of years to kind of outsmart cells and, and the host cells in the immune system, cancer also evolves uh, many different mechanisms to allow itself to continue to operate. And one of those things is cancer cells can sort of cloak themselves from the immune system. Um, and so the simplest way I like to think about it is that many cancer cells almost wear this sort of invisibility cloak and hide themselves from the immune system. And that what, what oncolytic viral therapy and other types of immunotherapy can do is work in a variety of ways to sort of rip that cloak away. Um, even just tearing a hole in it sometimes is enough. And, and once the tumor cells um, that can then be recognized and the immune system can do a whole lot of the work on its own to target and destroy the cancer cells. There was a really interesting um, theory of, of actually cancer immunology that was initially put forth actually a hundred more than 100 years ago, it was basically that our bodies actually are making and correcting the possibility for cancer to form over and over again, you know, hundreds of times a day, and that our immune system is actually the thing that is able to keep that from happening. And I, I think we're, as a, as a field of oncology overall, evolving to sort of understand how, how that happens on a, on a on a DNA level and how to make it happen more often on a human level. And that's, I think, why there's just been this huge, um, not renaissance, but almost awakening of how we can train the immune system. For so many years, it was get rid of, get rid of the white cells, get rid of everything because we need our chemotherapy to do its work and we need our, we need, you know, to blast everything into submission. And now we're starting to understand that actually you got to change hearts and minds. You can't just go and bomb the landscape for, there's another combat analogy for you. That's all fantastic. But one of the things I really want us to kind of delve into is there are some really interesting clinical trials right now that are combining immunotherapies um, with oncolytic virus therapy. And you are truly on the forefront of this. So I would I would love to know maybe just what what are you most excited to learn about from these studies? Yeah, um, yeah, there's some really amazing studies going on. And and so what we're most excited to learn how and when we can help these patients have complete responses to our therapies. So when you know, many of the trials right now are combining oncolytic virus with some form of immunotherapy because we are recognizing that oncolytic virus is the flame that will then, you know, start the change. And, and you know, it's, it's just such a wonderful grassroots analogy, right? All it takes is one person to make positive change. All it takes is one virus getting in and, and doing what it needs to do. And one-time treatment in many cases as well can, can tip the scale. Um, though that's an ongoing debate as well, single versus multiple dose, and I, I do believe multiple dose is going to win. But um, there is so much happening with immune correlates in these clinical trials that are just dramatically building our understanding of how and when to predict who will and won't respond to these these viruses and, and to what order of treatment. So what I'm really excited to learn first and foremost is who are our responders and what commonalities can we establish between them so that I know when I'm meeting a patient for the first time who I can and cannot, um, you know, reasonably predict will be here for the long term. 
and and because people make different decisions um, if, if they have you know a different outlook on on their treatment. Um, and the other thing, you know, as we establish these correlates, I think it it takes us even closer to a time when either a biopsy or hopefully a blood test or even an image will determine a, an individual patient's po best possible treatment course. Um, and so I think in addition to kind of these correlates where we're going to build patterns, a lot of what we're going to learn from these trials is going to tell us where viruses and immunotherapies belong in treatment paradigms. And what we've seen so far from um, TVEC, which is that FDA-approved herpes vector, is that actually it works really great as a first-line therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and this is just a very exciting time because, you know, we haven't mentioned much about, you know, how how people tolerate viral therapy, um, but really these injections are flu-like symptoms for a few days, and then you're, you move on. And that is so different from what we see with these months-long courses of chemotherapy. And so it's just a really exciting time, and, and, and we're, there's so many clinical trials going on, and, and it's almost like drinking water from a fire hose, uh, trying to get all the information we can. So in addition to all of that, in addition to spending an enormous amount of your time and effort, um, both in the lab and the clinic, thinking about patients and um, their outcomes and who will and won't be impacted by these combination therapies, you also have a really, I think, interesting and nuanced area of expertise where you not only think about a cancer patient's clinical experience, but also everything else about this patient. So there's spiritual journey, their emotional journey. Um, I, I want to hear a little bit about that, but I guess first I'd like to know what motivated you to be, to really want to kind of delve down into that surgeon-patient relationship. Yeah, thank you so much for asking about this. This is, this is probably the closest topic to my heart because it, it just governs the way I interact with my patients each day. So like all good research questions, this one started with my experiences helping patients navigate a post-operative period um, that has a lot of demands on our patients. So, you know, leaving aside the stresses of the modern medical system and particularly the United States modern medical system, um, People have a lot of emotions to deal with, especially once they're coming through an intense treatment. Um, you know, you get so focused. There's there's been a lot of studies on what what patients want to want to hear and and what they're focused on when they're in the midst of a very difficult treatment course. And so often we do these big studies, kind of getting at whether or not the patients um, are processing kind of the big picture. Because as a clinician from the outside looking into this patient's life, you're thinking about big numbers and survival curves and, you know, percentages. And, and this patient is binary. It's they're zero or 100%. They are living an experience that is not malleable um, by a bell curve. And so it's really difficult for us, I think, to connect, to go from the science level down to the human level and, and really in the thick of it, patients just want to know what's next, what's my next step. And so often with some of our more aggressive surgical therapies, we get to the end of this very intense run and patients kind of look around like like sticking their head up at the end of a, of a battle and like, can I, can I come out now? And there's a lot of, of sort of um, self-actualization that comes in that moment. And, and many times people actually feel a little bit depressed um, sometimes they feel survival guilt, survival guilt, pardon, and sometimes they um, 
you know, a lot of them spend a lot of time waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I can get back to my life just yet. And this actually takes a lot of kind of pre-existing, pre-cancer diagnosis problems that, that many times people can kind of put under a blanket during their treatment because, okay, I just have to get through treatment. And then you get done with that, and, and these problems are there waiting for them again. Mm-hmm. And now with the added anxiety of the cancer coming back or, or growing or whatever. So the, the very first time I ever saw this in real life, an amazing woman who'd actually had a, a big extensive surgery on the other side of the country and lived back where I did residency and had um, – and, and I was just there helping the other surgeon from the other side of the country by pulling a drain. Mm-hmm. And um, this woman w- w- pulled the drain and, and just kind of started talking about, you know, when to start reengaging in normal physical activity um, and, and talking through kind of some different exercises she could do. And she just started crying and, and just in tears when we were talking about the rest of her life. And and then, you know, we spent a little bit of time with her and her husband and come to find out um, that she was just having all these non-articulated emotions. Um, and, and that's when I realized that we, we do a terrible job of, of preparing people for what it's going to be like when you're all done or even of understanding the context in which mm-hmm. we're doing all this to people. And so... You know, I think that brought up for me a lot of a lot of different things. Number one, how can I help prepare these people for what's about to happen? And number two, how can I help them? How can I even know if we're if we're making the right decisions? If all we're doing is what's our ne- where's our next step? Where does our next our foot go next? And we we don't help the patients come up. And of course, we don't want to talk to them about the bell curves because nobody's going to, that's not going to resonate with anybody. But how do we help them make more global decisions for their life when all they can think about is the very next step to take? It's so interesting. And this isn't a a space where there there is not an incredible amount of research. So we're really grateful that you're here. Um, I, I do have one question for, for our listeners who are patients or supporting cancer patients who are having to make some pretty big decisions. Is there advice that you would like to share with them? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the first thing is, is that you, you know, you are your own best advocate. Um, and, and the organizations like the American Cancer Society and, and for pancreas cancer, um, PANCAN, um, have wonderful networks of patient education. Like, I think this is one of the things I am so amazed at the American Cancer Society is, is that your organization saw this need way before it was cool, right? Like, like setting up this need for the, these education centers um, where patients can call in and say, I've just been diagnosed with this, now what? And, and that, I think, a big part of um, where I see uh, patients maybe get directed down a care path that might not have been perfect for them is when when they are blindsided by the information that's being delivered. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. one of the best things that you can do after you have whatever horrible day it is that you hear the C word is regroup with your family. If you're not the one that's good at gathering information, then find somebody in your support network who is and and come to that visit armed with questions. And that will help you contextualize things. 
you know, sometimes I see it that the, the patient and their spouse are there and then there's somebody else from, from the family who's medically oriented and that's the person that's asking the tough questions. And then they can all discuss it later. But many times, you know, the, the, the patient and the, the person who's in the immediate circle of the patient who cares the most, they, don't, they can't and don't want to ask those scary questions of what does this really mean? Like what are the implications for this? Right. And so I think arming yourself with questions is, is the very first thing to do. Um, did that answer your question? Absolutely. And I love the okay. advice to, to don't approach it alone. You are your best advocate, but you can bring people with you to advocate for you. And a form of advocacy is sitting there with a pen and a pad and writing everything down and being ready to probe and ask questions, even when uh, the patient may not be ready or, or able to do so. So absolutely, I think that's really great advice. Um, we'll be excited to hear more about what you're doing in this space and and hope that you will will continue because I think all of what you're doing is um, just incredibly important and I hope you know we're grateful. Um, Thank you. I, I want to finish just with one question that is that I you have received some funding from the American Cancer Society and I think it's helpful for people to know if that has been impactful to you in some way because Every dime that the American Cancer Society gives to researchers came from donors, and I think it's it's helpful for people to understand that the ACS does lots of things. You're right. We do have a hotline that's available 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, and those are my colleagues that are on the other end of that phone who will talk to you um, and help you when you have that cancer diagnosis we do lots of things, and, and one of the things that we do is fund research. So is there a way that that funding has been impactful in your career? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I've said this a lot, um, that there are really, you know, four major pillars of academic funding, and one of those pillars is American Cancer Society. You get an American Cancer Society grant as a scientist, and especially as a, as a fledgling, up-and-coming, you know, surgeon scientist like myself, and this galvanized my career. Not only did it garner respect um, for me and resources at my own institution, but it gave me that extra push I needed um, both personally to identify as a person who's not just a clinician but is a laboratory scientist. And not that being a clinician doesn't have its own amazing benefits, um, but I think that those of us who are on the front lines every day treating patients are the ones who can ask the most relevant questions. Um, and American Cancer Society funding just essentially lends this almost automatic validity to somebody's science and has really paved the way both for, um, you know, publications and for my inclusion in research initiatives at a local and national level. Um, and then beyond that, you know, what I would say to, to your donors and to your listeners is, is thank you for everything that you're doing. I mean, we know that you're working so hard to be best for yourselves and for your family. And, and, and those of us who are American Cancer Society funded researchers I think more than other funding agencies, we know that we're serving a group of, of people who are in need yesterday of our science to hit. And um, we in our lab and hundreds of thousands of other people all around the country and the world are working every day um, so that the next person's experience will be different. Um, and then I would, I would also offer two final kind of pieces of, it, of advice that I didn't get to touch on. The first is that choosing happiness and a good lifestyle as part of a treatment plan that considers all of you instead of just your cancer can and should be a big part of your discussions with your care team. Uh, one of our City of Hope mottos is there's no profit in restoring the body if in the process we destroy the soul. And I think that 
that is something that the American Cancer Society has in mind and has forefront in, in their mission statement. And then the second piece of advice that I would say is if, and this, this part isn't so feel good, but if you ever get in a situation with a physician or in a care network that feels less than excellent, um, if, or if you are not connecting with your care team, get a second opinion. Good doctors will not be offended and will actually encourage you to hear information in a new way and will welcome another set of eyes on your case. I trained at the Mayo Clinic. The motto there is the best interest of the patient is the only interest to be considered. Mm -hmm. And every doctor has moments when we're not at our best. We're human. But if you regularly feel like your interest or your feelings are an afterthought, then it's time to reevaluate care. Well, Suzanne, and now I think I've said so everything I wanted to say. <laughs> I could listen to you all day, but I don't know how you carved out time for us. So we're grateful for it. And we're so thrilled that you're on the front lines and keep up the good work. We'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And again, thanks for everything you guys do and, and have done to support us here.